Welcome. You're listening to The Sanctuary Podcast with Pastor Tullian Chavidjan. If you'd like to learn more about The Sanctuary, visit our website, thesanctuaryjupiter.com. So these verses have been used to suggest that God will give us whatever we ask for. Whatever. They have been misinterpreted oftentimes to mean that whatever you ask God for, he'll give it to you. You just got to be persistent in your asking. The phrase, name it and claim it, is a phrase that maybe some of you have run into somewhere along the way. But the phrase name it and claim it refers to a message which essentially says that the way to get everything you want is to simply ask God for it and believe that he will give it to you. So if you want a Ferrari, just keep asking God for it. And if you believe that he will give you the Ferrari, you will get the Ferrari. Uh, if you want a bigger house, if you want a lot of money, if, if you want to be cured, whatever the case may be, you just got to keep asking God for it. And if you believe that he will give it to you, you will get it from him. Well, people who believe that often point to these verses. They often point to these specific verses to prove that what they're saying is true. That if you name it and if you claim it and if you believe, if you have enough faith to believe it, then it will happen. I've run into a lot of people over the years who are terminally ill or who have a family member who is terminally ill um, and they believe that if they simply pray hard enough for their family members or their own healing, uh, that they will get better. And oftentimes they get confused when their family member or they themselves don't get better and they think that God has failed to fulfill his promise. And then they go to these verses and say, well, what did Jesus mean if he didn't mean that? I thought he said, if you just keep asking and you believe that you will get what you're asking for, then God will give it to you like a genie in a bottle. Uh, But is that really what Jesus is teaching here? Is that what he's saying? Is he a proponent of the name it, claim it message, the health, wealth, prosperity message? Well, in order for us to know what these verses mean and what they don't mean, We have to be reminded of what this entire sermon is about. I oftentimes say that in order to understand a particular passage or a particular verse, we have to look at it in its larger context. What's going on before it? What's going on after it? Um, Because only then will we have a good idea, a good grasp of what's really going on. So in order for us to know what these verses mean, in order for us to know what these verses aren't teaching, we have to be reminded of what this whole sermon is about. And I've said each week... Uh, during this series that the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to demolish all notions that we can save ourselves by what we do, by who we can become, by what we can accomplish, by how spiritual we are, by what others think about us, and so on and so forth. That the Sermon on the Mount is not a goal. It's not a ladder that we climb to get more of God's love and to get more of God's blessings. It's a wall that we crash into so that we'll finally cry out, I can't do it. I can't make it on my own. C.S. Lewis famously said that no man knows how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good. I think that's true. And I think one of the purposes of the Sermon on the Mount is to show us that no matter how hard we try, no matter how much effort we put forth, we can never reach God's requirements. We can never meet God's demands. And so the Sermon on the Mount is this merciful wall that we crash into so that we'll finally cry out, I can't do it. I can't make it on our own. It's a wall that we crash into so that we find ourselves flat on our back where the only way out is up. 
looking for help outside of ourselves, looking for hope outside of ourselves. This whole sermon has been about the various ways we try to make ourselves right with God, with others, with ourselves. And this sermon shows how all of our attempts to do that will ultimately fall short. So if you want to know what this entire sermon is about, Jesus' entire Sermon on the Mount is about, you can really sum it up in two phrases. God demands perfection, phrase number one, and God delivers perfection, phrase number two. One is law. God demands perfection. We see that over and over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, Jesus sums up an entire section by saying, therefore, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. If you want to do this on your own, if you don't want God involved, but you want to get God's love and get God's acceptance, then it's really simple. You just have to be perfect in thought, word, and deed. You have to be pure. You have to be sinless in thought, word, or deed. No spot, no blemish whatsoever on your record. And if you can, if you can attain perfection, then you will get God's love and get God's blessing. Well, that's supposed to be a wall that we crash into so that all of us, no matter how good or bad we are, we say, I can't do that. I mean, I may be able to jump farther than that guy, but I can't jump to the moon, which is what God requires. Um, so this whole sermon has been really our way. It's been sort of an expose of the various ways we try to climb the ladder, the various ways we try to make ourselves right with God by what we do, by what we pursue, with ourselves, with what we avoid, with other people. Uh, this entire sermon has been about the various ways we try to do that, an expose of the various ways we try to do that, and then shows us that we can't do it. So to sum it up again, God demands perfection, phrase number one, God delivers perfection, phrase number two. So it's only when we are faced with God's demand to be perfect will we be forced to see ourselves as imperfect and then be freed by the fact that Jesus was perfect for us. So this entire sermon is meant to expose our need for God, expose our need for his mercy, for his work, for his grace, for his love. Now, knowing that that's the primary point of this whole sermon, we can now sort of understand what Jesus is teaching here. Okay, if we understand what I just said to be the summary, the context of the sermon as a whole, now we can go back to these verses and go, okay, now what is he teaching? What, what, how do we understand what Jesus is saying here? He's not saying God is waiting to give you whatever you ask him for. All you have to do is ask and believe. Okay, that's clearly not what he's saying. What he is saying is that no one who recognizes their need for God's mercy will be refused God's mercy. That's what he's saying. That no one who admits their desperation will be denied God's deliverance. No one. That the door of freedom is open wide to those who finally realize how enslaved they are, how bound they are, how incapable they are. That no one who declares their bankruptcy will be declined God's riches. That's what it's saying. That's what Jesus is saying. He's promising one thing. 
He's not promising that your life is gonna be easy. He's not promising to give you everything you want. He's not promising to ensure that you will be financially stable the rest of your life or healthy the rest of your life or that your relationships will always be smooth and harmonious. That's not what he's saying. He's promising one thing, righteousness, rightness. The one thing that will make you right with God, with yourself, with others. See, if we insist, and I said this two weeks ago, but if we insist on believing that we are good and strong, then Christianity will have zero appeal to us whatsoever. Uh, I call it Christianity light. This idea that the Christian faith is really simply about uh, a good person telling other good people how to be better people. Okay, we, we sort of summarize the Christian faith as a message of good advice. It's, a, it's sort of a, a divine self-help manual, the Bible is, that if you just do what the Bible says, you'll be helping yourself along the way. Um, but if we believe that, if we insist on believing that we're good and strong and capable, uh, better than we are, then Christianity will have zero appeal to, to us because Christianity is a message of two words, Demand and deliverance, law and gospel. Uh, it exposes our need and, ex- and it exposes God's provision for that need, specifically in the person of Jesus. So it's intended to do two things. And sort of the secret sauce of my preaching, the secret sauce of my, the, the method behind my madness, um, is that every sermon I preach essentially has two points. The first part of the sermon is intended to expose you and to show you your need that I look at verses or I look at a passage from the Bible and I teach you what it says so that you'll be reacquainted with your desperation. Okay, that's, that's one thing. Uh, then I don't leave you there because God doesn't leave you there. Then I come in and say, but however, however dire or bad or desperate your situation is, God's done something about it. And because God's done something about it, you're in forever. You're, you, you live your life under a banner that reads, it is finished because God has done something. Because God has loved you, not because you love God, but because God has loved you. You're, you're in forever. That's, that's good news. That's what the gospel is called. Little sneak preview for our next sanctuary studies. Stacy and I were talking about, it'll be combined. So men and women in here beginning in a few weeks after Easter. Um, we were talking about it the other morning. And I said, I think I want to do a three-week little series, uh, sort of facilitate a group conversation on simply what is the gospel? Just what is the gospel? It's a word we talk about around here. It's a word we say around here. Uh, It's a word you hear from me around here week in and week out. Uh, But what is it exactly? So in order to get the answer to that, you're going to have to come back in a few weeks. Um, But notice the people that God gives his righteousness to, okay? We looked at this last week. Notice the people God gives us his his righteousness to. Sinful people with logs in their eyes. We looked at that last week where Jesus says, why in the world are you so fascinated, so fixated on identifying the speck in everybody else's eye when you have a log in your own eye? Well, the people that God gives his righteousness to are sinful people, with logs in their eyes. Now, that's amazing because that makes him such a misfit God. All the other gods give good gifts to good people. This God gives good gifts to bad people. It makes no sense whatsoever. It's completely counterintuitive. And not only does God give, he specifically gives to those who are unrighteous and imperfect. He gives to guilty people. 
He gives to bad people. This is the same picture of God that we have in Romans 5, where Paul says that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. What's he saying there? Next week, we'll have communion. Stacy won't be here, but I have a special guest who will be serving communion with me. You have to show up to find out who that is. Um, but one of the things that I point out before we take communion every, every time we do it is that passage where Paul says in Corinthians, on the night he was betrayed... Jesus took bread, broke it, gave it to his disciples and says, this is my body broken for you. How amazing it is that Paul would describe of all the ways he could describe that evening. It could have said on the night that uh, Jesus had his last supper with his disciples, on the night Jesus was arrested, on the night before Jesus was crucified. He could have described that night in a thousand ways, but he chose to say on the night he was betrayed. He's thinking the same thing. The apostle Paul is thinking the same thing there that he said in Romans 5 when he says, while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. In other words, while we were at our worst, God gave us his best. At our worst. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, where sin is great, grace is even greater. Now, he's not saying Sin more and more and more so that you'll get a lot of grace. The secret to getting a lot of grace from God is just tank your life. Do that and you'll get more grace. That's not what he's saying, okay? What he's saying is that where there is a lot of sin, there's even more grace. So elsewhere he says, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Of course not. But when we do sin, does grace abound? Absolutely. Both of those statements are true. There is uh, only one kind of person that God comes to and loves. One kind. Sinners. If you don't like to think of yourself as a sinner or you don't believe yourself to be a sinner or you don't like to think of yourself as needy or guilty or bad or whatever other adjective you may want to use, um, then God's love and God's acceptance of you won't amaze you. His mercy won't seem amazing to you. His grace won't seem amazing to you. You won't cry ever when you think about the fact that God has forgiven you and adopted you. I mean, that, that is so, all of those things are so incredibly beautiful against the backdrop of our guilt and need. So if we don't think we're guilty and we don't think we're needy, then those things will seem irrelevant to us. They won't seem necessary and they certainly won't seem beautiful. So there's only one kind of person that God comes to and loves and accepts sinners. And the Bible gives a bunch of metaphors to describe this. It says, the whore is made a bride, the dead are raised, the unrighteous are called righteous, slaves are made sons, the blind are given sight. The, the sick are healed. The guilty are forgiven. Sinners are saved. There are so many different metaphors, so many different pictures the Bible gives to illustrate this. I don't know how we got it so backwards. I mean, we've just gotten it so backwards. Where did we ever get the idea that God is for clean and competent people? You know, maybe... I didn't hear that growing up per se, that God is for clean and competent people. But all the sermons were intended to make me clean and competent. And, the in, and, and sort of the implication was, the more clean and competent you are, 
the more God will love you, the more he'll delight in you, the more God will like you. And so no one stood up in a Sunday school class or on a youth retreat or on a Sunday morning or in my Christian school, although I think I may have actually heard that line in my Christian school, but whatever. Um, But no, I don't remember anyone ever saying those words that God is for clean and competent people. But all the messaging that I got growing up in a Christian environment was intended to make me a cleaner, more competent person. And the, like I said, the implication was that that will make me more acceptable to God. The more moral I am, the more well-behaved I am, the cleaner I am, the more competent I am, the more spiritually disciplined I am, that's the secret to get God's love. That's the secret to get God's acceptance. That's the secret to get blessings from God. Um, But where did we ever get that idea? Why is Christianity portrayed to so many as a religion for good people, moral people, rule-keeping, law-abiding people? There were a lot of rule-keeping, law-abiding religious people in Jesus' day. And those were the only people he called out on a regular basis. And those were also the same people who couldn't stand Jesus because he hung out with all the rule-breakers. Because he hung out with all the people who uh, the religious leaders couldn't see God hanging out with. The truth is, and it's a beautiful truth for all of us, that God is for the unclean and incompetent. And when measured against God's demand for perfection, we are all unclean. We are all incompetent. Unclean and incompetent is the only prerequisite for entrance into God's family. (laughs) That's it. Um, The family of God is the only club, okay, in the world where the qualification for membership is that you're not qualified for membership, okay? It's the only club in the world. Every other club you join, whatever it is, you have to qualify for membership. You have to apply. You have to qualify. You have to demonstrate certain skills, perhaps, or a certain level of income or whatever the case may be. But the family of God is the only club in the world where the qualification for membership is that you're not qualified for membership. The only club. Robert Capon puts it this way, and it's one of my favorite lines from him. It is precisely our sins and not our goodnesses that most commend us to the grace of God. Precisely our sins and not our supposed goodnesses that commend us to the grace of God. It's our lostness, our weakness, our badness, and our guilt that summons God's grace. Not our cleanliness, not our strength, because our cleanliness isn't that clean and our strength isn't that strong. At the very least, it doesn't reach God's demand for cleanliness and strength. It is our need for grace that fetches the grace we need. Okay, that's, that is big, okay? And I think that tells a very different story about a very different kind of God than perhaps what you grew up hearing, if you grew up hearing anything about God at all. That it is our need for grace that actually fetches the grace we need. That's what the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, becoming man, taking on human flesh and frailties, becoming like us, 
It was our need. It wasn't our goodness, our cleanliness, our spiritual maturity that summoned God, uh, God's help. It was our need. It was our badness. It was our guilt. That's really what the incarnation is all about. It's God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's God becoming like us so that we would be rescued from the kinds of people that we are. It is our lostness, our weakness, our badness, and our guilt that summons God's grace, which is why we sing, which is why the old hymn says, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need for him. That's it. Need, dirtiness, lostness, desperation, guilt, need. That is all you need. That's the only thing you bring to the table of God's rescue of you. Love from God is not a reward for good people. It's not a divine pat on the back for a job well done. That's not what it is. Otherwise, that wouldn't, that wouldn't separate God from any of us. I mean, that's what we do with other people. We love people who deserve our love. We, we give good gifts to those who deserve those good gifts. But God doesn't love the way we do. He gives good gifts to people who don't deserve it, which is why I wrote a devotional many years ago. Um, it was somewhat controversial, but I said that Halloween is more Christian than the way we currently celebrate Christmas. And people got all up in arms. You know, I had more articles sent to me about the origins of Halloween. I'm just like, okay, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, but think about Halloween. Everybody shows up, good, bad, or indifferent. Everybody gets something. You know, everybody. You knock on a door, and you're not asked, hey, did you make good grades in school uh, this semester? Have you been obedient to your parents? Or anything like that. We just give candy to people who don't deserve it. Um, Christmas, on the other hand, what is it? how do we currently celebrate it? Or how is the world currently celebrated uh, with Santa Claus? You know? He's checking his list or going over it twice or whatever it is. I don't remember what the words are, but you get it. You know that, I mean, Santa Claus will give you coal if you've been bad and he'll give you presents if you've been good. That's more in line with the way we operate, the way this world operates. I think God is more preferential toward Halloween, the way it's currently celebrated, more so than Christmas, the way it is currently celebrated, uh, because it's such a picture of God giving gifts to anyone and everyone, regardless of their record. Uh, it's just for the asking. It's their need. Um, so love from God is, is not a reward for good people. It's not a divine pat on the back for a job well done. Rather, love from God is a gift to guilty people. It's, a, it's an undeserved embrace for those who fall short again and again and again and again. You see, the, the truth about us, it's not easy truth, but the truth about us is that, is that we need God. We do. We need God because we're not as good as we need to be. We need God because we're not as strong as we want to be. We need God because... Uh, we're not as pure and selfless and unconditionally loving as we're required to be. We need God because we're not perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. When Jesus said he came for sinners and not the righteous, remember he says at a party, he's sitting there with a bunch of religious people uh, and a 
prostitute barges through the door. She heard Jesus was in town and she barges through the front door and begins washing his feet with her tears and anointing his feet with expensive perfume. And of course, all the religious people are aghast. They're just, they, they can't believe what's happening before them. And amongst each other, they're saying, if this man really knew who this woman was, she would not be, he would not be allowing her to touch him like this. Clearly, he's an imposter. And Jesus responds by simply saying something to this effect. You think that she needs to become more like you, but I tell you, you actually need to become more like her. Well, of course, they didn't understand that, and they certainly didn't like it. So when Jesus said, I haven't come for the righteous, I've come for sinners. He wasn't saying that there are two kinds of people in this world. There are righteous people, good people, moral people, strong people who don't need me. And then there are weak, guilty, unrighteous, bad people who do. I've come for them, not you. You don't need me, they do. That wasn't what he was saying. What he was saying is there are two kinds of people in this world. There are bad people who know that they're bad, and there are bad people who think that they're good. There are unrighteous people who think that they're righteous, and there are unrighteous people who know that they're unrighteous. There are guilty people who know that they're guilty, and there are guilty people who think that they're innocent. I've come for the person who can, the only person who can hear my voice, and that's the guilty person who knows they're guilty. The weak person who knows they're weak. It's not that the others are cast out. It's that they don't recognize their need for him. And until you do, you won't be open to what he has to offer, to what he's giving. The gift that he offers you, you will turn away because you don't think you, don't think you need it. So when Jesus said he came for sinners and not the righteous, he didn't mean there are those who need him and those who don't. He meant there are those who know they're guilty and those who think they're good. In other words, it's the I give uppers, not the do it yourselfers who hear his voice. Which is why I've shared this many times, which is why I have finally reached a point in my life where I'm okay saying that my life doesn't look like Jesus. Okay, just follow me around driving down Indian Town Road for five minutes. Now, I don't know how Jesus walked around. He may have walked faster than was allowed. I don't know. But, um, but I, 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 my life doesn't look like Jesus. And now that I'm 50 and I look back over the course of my life and I see the highs and the lows and the good times, and the bad times, um, I can say for certain that it's not just me now. It's me for 50 years that I can finally say my life doesn't look like Jesus. It looks like someone who needs Jesus. That's what my life looks like. Brennan Manning, uh, in his remarkable book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, which I highly recommend, um, wrote this. The gospel only sounds like good news to the bedraggled, beat up, and burnt out. It is for the sorely burdened who are still shifting the heavy suitcase from one hand to the other. It is for the wobbly and weak need who know they don't have it all together. It is for the inconsistent, unsteady disciples whose cheese is falling off their cracker. It is for poor, weak, sinful men and women with hereditary faults and limited talents. It is for earthen vessels who shuffle along on feet of clay. It is for the bent and the bruised who feel that their lives are a grave disappointment to God. It's for honest disciples who admit they are scalawags. I love that. We get it backwards. We teach it backwards. 
We teach the people around us backwards. We teach our kids backwards. You see, Christianity is not good advice for good people. If anything, it is good news for guilty people coping with their failure to be good. That's what it is. It's not good advice for good people, okay? If anything, it is good news for guilty people who are coping with their failure to be good, who keep failing in one way, shape, or form, maybe not in big, dramatic ways, but even in small, subtle ways, ways that no one sees, ways that you may not even see. It's for people who keep failing over and over and over again. It's for people who keep falling short over and over and over again. See, the heart of the Christian faith is not good advice, good technique, or good behavior. It is good news. Good news that announces God's unfailing devotion to us despite our ongoing failing devotion to him. It is not our faithfulness that's great. It's his faithfulness that's great. See, the gospel, and we'll go over this in our sanctuary studies uh, study about the gospel, but the gospel is not a command to hang on to God. The gospel doesn't command anything. The law commands everything. The gospel commands nothing. It just gives. The gospel is not a command to hang on to God. It's a promise that no matter how weak our faith may be, he's always holding on to us. Always. Which is why I've said a thousand times from this stage that um, I'm here today and I'm alive Not because in my darkest days, I held on to God. I didn't. I let go of him a thousand times. I ran in the opposite direction of God more times than I can count, just like Jonah. That's not why I'm here. It's not why I'm alive. I'm alive today and standing here today, not because in my darkest days, I held on to God, but because in my darkest days, God never let go of me, ever. He never let go of me. When my faith was weak and insipid, God's God's faithfulness was strong. My badness didn't deter him from giving me his goodness. My sin didn't deter him. He didn't stand at some antiseptic distance from my messiness. He entered into it. He got on the bathroom floor with me. It's not that, you know, God is shouting from the rooftop, come on, man, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Get it right. Look at all I've done for you. Look at all I've given to you. Now it's time to grow up and be a man. Do what you gotta do. Pick yourself up and follow me. Okay, he just gets on the bathroom floor with us. He is the the shepherd who keeps going after the lost sheep. Keeps going after the lost sheep. And when he finds the lost sheep. He doesn't spank it. He doesn't chide it. He doesn't say, you've done this five times this week. One more time, I'm done with you. He doesn't do that. He simply picks it up, puts it over his shoulders, rejoices, carries it home, and throws it a party. That's what he does. It's the father in the parable of the prodigal son. He didn't say to his rebellious son, who lived riotously in the far country, wasting all of his inheritance. He didn't say, listen, before you come any further, I need to see that you've repented for your sins. I need a tangible demonstration of your repentance. 
And if me and the elders can evaluate whether or not you are sincerely repentant, then and only then will I welcome you back into our home and throw you a party. Isn't that the way we treat other Christians? Isn't that the way churches treat other Christians who wander off? You know, it's like, we won't let you back in or we won't, we won't accept you until you can sit before the tribunal and demonstrate that you are genuinely sorry and repentant. That's not the way God operates. I mean, the father just simply runs and grabs his son and before his son can get one word of confession out of his mouth, the father puts a ring on his finger, coat around his shoulders and says, come on, let's not waste any more time. There's a party waiting. My lost son has come home. There was one person in that story who hated that. The older brother who kept all the rules, who did everything right who made sure that he stayed within the lines. He just could not understand why his father would be so recklessly gracious with this son who was so badly behaved. Aren't you going to ground him? Aren't you going to maybe make him sleep outside for a month? I mean, the very first thing you do for him is throw him a party? And of course, the oldest brother's like, I've served you faithfully, and well my entire life, and you've never thrown me a party. I'm the one who deserves a party, not him. Grace always provokes those who think they're better. Always. Grace always provokes. It angers, it annoys people with a high anthropology, people who think that they're good and strong and deserving of whatever God has to give. Um, I don't know who said this, but I love it. The dance that God has invited us to is always going on. And the band playing the music of forgiveness never takes a break, ever. Beautiful, true. This, uh, this message is more important than ever, in my opinion. Not this sermon in particular, but this message is more important than ever because people are tired. Man, I mean, I... I a lot of my friends are not Christians. Um, I learn a lot from them, actually. People that I talk to on a regular basis, I learn a lot from them. They're searching under every rock and behind every tree for the thing that God has given me for free. And when the opportunities present themselves, I may talk about it. I don't push it on them. I'm not their friend because I have an ulterior motive, I'm just, I enjoy their company. I think they enjoy mine. Um, and uh, I, I, I see that they're, they're living on this performance treadmill that everyone around them is encouraging them to stay on and they're just tired. People need this. They don't need some version of Christianity telling them to do more, try harder, get better and climb higher because they hear that everywhere else. Everywhere else. Someone asked me a number of years ago in an interview, what, in your opinion, is countercultural preaching? Okay, preaching that is um, countercultural, that doesn't flow with the messaging of the world, but flows against it. And I said, countercultural preaching is preaching an it is finished message in a just do it world. That's what it is. People are tired. Um, Dr. Richard, Richard Leahy, this is an amazing statistic, okay, he said this. Uh, not a Christian, 
uh, a clinical psychiatrist, said this, the average high school kid today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the early 1950s. And that's the effect that the messaging of the world and oftentimes the church has on people. It just, it wears us out. It's, we're tired. We're, we're exhausted. We're trying so hard and climbing so far and fast and we're not getting anywhere. Um, people don't need any more advice on what to do, how to get better, how to achieve more and so on and so forth. This world is just noisy with that kind of messaging, just noisy. What people need is the quiet truth of God's simple love for them. No matter who they are, what they've done, or what they failed to do. What this world desperately needs is good news. The good news of God's grace, which gives hope to the hopeless and points all of us performance treadmill runners back to the relief and freedom of God's unconditional love. That's what we need. I, I yearn for people to be set free from their guilt and their goodness. Not just their guilt, but their supposed goodness. And to find rest in the never-changing, never-ending mercies of God. I want that to happen so bad. I want that to happen for my kids, for my grandkids, for my wife, for my friends, for my family, for myself. I long for broken people, and make no mistake about it, we are all broken people. But I long for broken people burdened by their many failures or broken people banking on their many successes. I yearn for broken people to understand that Christianity is not for strong people who try hard. It's for weak people who finally give up. That's who it's for. Weak people who finally give up. Jesus didn't say... Come to me and I'll show you how to fix yourself. Come to me and I'll show you how to fix your spouse, how to fix your friend, how to fix your mom, your dad, how to fix other people. If you come to me, I will give you the secret manual on how to fix yourself and how to fix other people. That's not what he said. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me if you're tired of hiding. Come to me if you're tired of trying to make it on your own. Come to me if you're tired of keeping up with appearances and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest from all that stuff. Martin Luther said, and I've, I've quoted him, I've quoted this before. I love it. May a merciful God preserve me from a church in which everyone is good. <laughs> he said, I want to be and remain in a church of the faint-hearted the feeble and the ailing who feel and recognize their failures, who cry to God for comfort and help, who believe in the forgiveness of sins. I want that too. I think everybody wants that. I was talking to a friend earlier this week and I said, you know, uh, I've had a handful of friends over the years walk away from Christianity. They just, they couldn't do it anymore. The message they got was they got to get better. They got to clean up their act. They, they kept falling back into the same destructive patterns. And they just assumed that since everybody else has turned their back on them, God must have turned his back on them too. And so they just, they bail. 
And whenever I get to the bottom of why they are sort of discarding the whole thing, throwing out the baby with the bathwater, flushing it all down the toilet, they essentially get to the point of saying, I just, I couldn't do it. It's not for me. I couldn't do it. And I, I always enjoy saying, you know, the God that you're rejecting is a God I reject too. I don't know who told you that God was like this, but he's not. That's not who he's like. That's not who he is. He's, he's a God who won't stop loving you, especially when you don't deserve it, who won't stop forgiving you. There is no ceiling to his forgiveness. He's a 70 times seven forgiving kind of God, which means his forgiveness knows no end. It's eternal. And when I finally get down to the bottom of it with these people, what I realize is that no one's rejecting Christianity because Christianity at the core is about grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. You don't have to be a Christian to long for those things. All you have to do is be a human to long for those things. There's not a person alive that doesn't long for love, who doesn't long for forgiveness, especially when they've screwed up, who doesn't long for mercy and grace, especially when they screw up, especially when they don't deserve it. Everybody knows that to be true. And that's what Christianity's about. And yet, you know, people sort of roll their eyes as if this is just one more cult that's trying to make you into a better person according to their standard of whatever they mean by betterment. Well, I mean, that's, I reject that too. That's, that's not what it's about at all. But we've done a really, really good job of making people think that's what it's about. And so there are a ton of people out there who think that's the way God is. That's what Christianity is. And so they're like, that's not for me. But when you've really screwed up, when you've tanked, even if it's not something big, you've, you've said something in haste, you've, you've lost your temper, you've, you've done something that you shouldn't do, or you have failed to do things that you should do, or you really messed up in some way, even in your own heart and mind, to know that God is there not turning his back on you, but loving you and forgiving you, that is, a, that is the gift of good news. And that's the essence of what Christianity is. That's the essence of who God is. Because when it's all said and done, Christianity is for sinners. <laughs> it's for sex addicts and shopaholics. It's for control freaks and adulterers and codependents and blame shifters and gossips and alcoholics and liars and narcissists and worry warts. It's for the selfish, it's for the angry, it's for the arrogant, it's for the scared, it's for the proud, it's for the unrighteous and the self-righteous. It's for you. It's for me. Sinners are the only people God gives his grace to, and that means, thankfully, I qualify. And so do you. Let's pray. If you've enjoyed this message, be sure to subscribe to the Sanctuary Podcast. You can find it on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast.